0: So it's a pleasure to present um, this panel on systemic approaches to inequality. Obviously, inequality is an issue that spans and connects with everything that we've been speaking about this weekend. Um, we're joined by Eva Cox, Dr. Ben Spies butcher Dr. Elise Klein, and Chris Toomey. First up, I'd now like to welcome Dr. Ben Spies butcher who's a senior lecturer in Economy and Society at Macquarie University. His research focuses on the economics and politics of social and environmental policy and political participation. Thanks, Ben.
1: Um, Thanks very much, and it's always a bit hard to go after Eva, Uh, so we'll see how we go. Um, Thanks very much for having me here. It's great to be on this panel, but particularly at this conference, I just think it's been um, a really useful... Uh, thing for our movement and for me and for I know a lot of other people it's great to have this kind of conversation so thanks very much to the Green Institute for doing it um, so I want to try and do three quick things and I'm going to try and do them quickly I want to talk a little bit about what's happened with inequality um, a little bit about uh, some of the things that I think are going wrong and some political strategies that I think can go right uh, so first of all um, so we know that inequality is But I think we we still have some misconceptions about exactly what's driving that. Uh, The the discussion of neoliberalism usually presupposes that we have moved to a small state and we've been reducing government. Uh, And that is not true. It's not true in Australia. Uh, It's not true in most of the developed world. So both if you count um, how much governments spend, how they spend it, or the kind of powers they have, the state has grown over the last 30 years. Um, It is more intrusive and more authoritarian than it was before, as Eva was saying with um, uh, the provision of welfare. But we actually spend more money on um, social policy, even as a proportion of our economy, than we did 30 years ago. That money is more redistributive. More of it goes to poor people and rich people than it did 30 years ago. It's important to know that, because if you think that the only thing that's going to solve this is by increasing how much money we give to poor people through the government and targeting it effectively, we've done that for 30 years, and inequality has got worse in that time. So that is, the gap between rich and poor has grown. So why has that happened? So there's a few different bits of that puzzle. One is that uh, wages have not kept up with productivity and with profits. So those who make their money out of the stock exchange, their incomes have been going up quicker than those that make their money by turning up and having a job. Uh, and that's pretty consistent over the last 30 years. It's actually not as bad in Australia as it has been in many other countries. Uh, real wages in the United States have not grown for 30 to 40 years. That is, the actual amount that you, can, that you take home has not grown for that period of time. It's also true that, in, and this is particularly for Australia, that the amount of hours that we can work is now become a serious problem for a lot of people. The number of, un- of underemployed people is high in Australia. It spiked in the ni- early 1990s during the recession, and it hasn't gone back down since then. There are a lot of people who don't have enough uh, hours to be able to get the income they need to be able to buy the things that give them a decent life. Now, when I'm not suggesting necessarily that we need only to think about this through paid work, but at the moment, that's how our system's based. Most people, that's how they get their money. And the final part of the puzzle is that, um, for a, a large number of people, the things they need to buy with the incomes they get, the prices of those things that they really need have been going up more quickly than the prices of other things. So much so that in the United States, where this system is, you know, has gone to the full extent, uh, people are, have people's disposable income has shrunk dramatically, and as a result household debt has increased dramatically. Where households could save, they now are in debt despite the fact that they spend less on virtually all of the things that we associate with consumerism. They spend less on consumer durables, they spend less on clothing, they spend less on food and going out. They spend more on childcare and education, they spend um, more uh, on healthcare, they spend more on housing. Um, So there's something broken in the system that means... People who are working aren't getting a fair reward for that. And the things that we really need are being provided in a way that's quite inaccessible to a lot of people. So that's the problem. I'm going to try and move on to some other issues. Please give me warnings as I go along. I think one of the real challenges we face, which Eva was alluding to, is that we've developed a system in targeting things only to people who are seen to be in real need, of fragmenting interests of setting people against each other and seeing ourselves as having different interests. Um, And we've built a a series of institutions that provide for our needs, which have two versions of them. We have Medicare, which is public, and we have private health insurance. We have public and private schools. Um, And we have a a system of welfare benefits where there are some which are uh, provided so that most people get access to them, like family benefits, um, which go to decent... Uh, people, and others which are are seen to go to people who are less deserving and are subject to extraordinarily punitive um, uh, surveillance. So I think a real challenge for the Greens is how to try and unite those interests, how to get us to think of ourselves as a community, to think of ourselves as facing common um, problems, and how we can solve those problems uh, together. One of the reasons I think that is really important is that most of the cost pressures in those systems, the things that are going up, are all the bits that are privatised. So the cost pressures in healthcare are highest, that is the prices of health are going up fastest in the private sector. It's also true that pumping money into, um, into schools on a relatively unequal basis has created a race where we now have some schools which are spending enormous quantities of money on things which are demonstrably not necessary for education while others don't have enough. Yeah? And by setting up that system, we've now meant that all new dollars that have to go in, go in in a way where at least some of those dollars get spent on archery ranges, while we're still not able to meet some basic needs elsewhere. I think this is why the, the UBI idea is useful. Um, so I will talk about it briefly too, because I know that's one of the things everyone's really passionate about, and I think Green Institute has been driving really well. But it's useful also to get a couple of things, uh, a couple of myths out on that. Universal basic income will primarily increase the incomes of people who are not the poorest people in Australia. The poorest people in Australia are the ones who already get um, those incomes. It will make their lives infinitely better because they won't have to deal with Centrelink. But it's not really going to increase their incomes. So in terms of how how we deal with it with inequality, it has the potential to deal with inequality, but in a slightly different way to, I think, the way that we've been trained to think of that in Australia. And one of the, the main ways is that it unites political interests so that they can effectively argue for things from government. So if we look over the last 20 years, Labor and Liberal governments... Labour and Liberal governments have cracked down on people who are on New Start. They've added more people to New Start and they've made it harder to get. Labour and Liberal governments have both done that. Over the last 20 years, Labour and Liberal governments have both increased the rate of the age pension and have both increased the rate of family benefits. Made new decisions to increase them, not just through indexation. That's kind of remarkable. The amount of money we spend on Newstart is nothing compared to the amount of money we spend on the age pension or on family benefits. It is much, much more expensive to expand the payments we've expanded and we save almost nothing trying to cut down on the payments we cut down on. How on earth would you explain that? Yeah, it makes absolutely no sense. Unless you think about it politically and you don't think about it economically. You have to think about this as a united coalition of people who are seen as deserving being able to win things off government when they talk about their social needs and how they have a right to things. That works, and they make real claims and they get access to real resources, which magically materialise when governments are under real pressure. But when we construct um, groups as uh, marginalised, when they have very little political power, and when they're not very well organised and they're small in number, they get screwed. I think the most important thing of a UBI is its potential to be able to unite interests, to be able to bring uh, the bits of the welfare system which are most stigmatised into a different framework, to be able to think about this differently. I think it also deals with the other real problem that um, many of our supporters face, and I think we should be upfront that Uh, We don't represent the rich, but many of our supporters are reasonably well off. Many have gone to university. Many have professional jobs and and decent jobs. But one of the real problems that many uh, young people in particular face, the core of our um, base, is that the expectations they have of the labour market are not being met. They go to university. They incur quite large debts. Okay, I'm going to finish up on this. Um, And they have absolutely no job security whatsoever. It's not even clear how they enter the job market, It's actually really uncertain if you're leaving university where you even go to look for the jobs that are supposed to be in your field. Um, We've dismantled all of the apprenticeship systems, even the ones in the public sector that used to be for, for public servants to be able to do that. And you're likely to have incomes that change quite a bit over time. So this is not so much that you are in poverty in the sense that you just don't have any income and you're about to lose your house, but you've got a high rent, you have to pay it every week, but the amount you earn changes every week. Some weeks you'll have enough, some weeks you might not have enough because you've got a casual job or a contract job. And I think one of the other things that basic income has a real potential to do is to free people from some of that stress, to provide at least some security that they have some way of being able to deal with what are very, very uncertain times. But, and this is the last thing I will say, I think it would be an extraordinary mistake to pit that directly against good jobs. People do need job security. They do need to be able to have good, quality careers where they have control over their work, and it's really important that we work with them to be able to do that. Being able to build quality public services, I think, is key to that. If you look at the distribution of jobs in the economy over this period, the last 20 to 30 years, what is most striking is that there is an enormous jobs boom going on, but those jobs are not... um, supported in the way they should and not valued in the way they should be. Uh, I'm involved in these two different debates, which I find really hard to reconcile. One is an automation debate that says there's not going to be any jobs very soon. And the other is a debate on an ageing society, which says that we can't afford it because it costs too much to employ all the care workers we need in order to be able to uh, care for people. We can create a care economy that has good quality jobs that is economically sound and that delivers people the needs they need at a lower cost by being able to expand these services. And those things can go absolutely hand in glove. In fact, I think it's the only viable economic strategy that a party like this could possibly pursue. And we should see those things as job questions where we support unions to be able to lift standards and to be able to get decent wages. And we should say the job security of the future, the kinds of jobs that people want their kids to go into... Um, in working class communities, uh, they're not, we should still defend manufacturing absolutely, but those kinds of jobs, like in car factories, we should be thinking that's what aged care should look like, that's what disability support care should look like, and we want well-trained people in there, we want our kids to go and get those jobs and they're going to be secure, and what's more, they're going to be located across the country and not just in the centre of Sydney and Melbourne. So there are some really exciting ways of being able to pursue that. I think they are absolutely bound up with our principles. And they do respond to the rising inequality crisis, but in a way that I think centrally unites political interests to fight that fight. Thanks very much.
0: Thanks so much, Ben. That's quite the call to arms, and I'm sure there'll be um, yeah lots of comments. Um, I'd now like to welcome Dr. Elise Klein, um, a good friend of mine, and a lecturer of Development Studies at University of Melbourne. Um, her research is expansive um, spanning conditionality and indigenous policy um, development interventions women's economic empowerment and economic
2: rights thank you Elise Thanks, Felicity. Thanks, everyone. I also, I will. I want to acknowledge uh, that we're in the country of the Ngunnawal people. To acknowledge elders, past and present, um, and to acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded. And I think you know, sovereignty is an important, um, of course. Um, Uh, Situation and and, and issue that that we need to think through, but also how that links with um, economic insecurity in Australia and the way in which capitalism, Australia's story of capitalism, um, is intertwined uh, with uh, notions of land and labour, which I'll get to uh, later on. So this paper is about economic rights. So uh, inequalities are various, but I'm talking today about economic inequality. And I guess there's a bit of a pattern when people are talking about inequalities. They start talking about uh, social welfare, and particularly they start talking about um, social security system, um, which is, and and particularly around payments, um, which are, are means tested and highly regulated. Um, My argument in this paper, which hopefully I can get through most of it, is that we need to go beyond the the concept of welfare and we need to start thinking about a, a universal basic income, but a universal basic income as a rightful share. So just a few things around um, why I I query the concept of of welfare. First, the story of Australian welfare has always been conditional and it has been used to regulate populations about who are the lifters, who are the leaners, but also around uh, who's included in citizenship, but also notions of gender. Um, So, for example, the age pension in 1908 um, was used to to expand the White Australia policy um, by not including uh, non-white residents but also to exclude First Nations people. The maternity allowance introduced in 1912 also had racial and colonial elements to it, again not paid to non-white and Indigenous Australians. Today conditions on welfare are a lot more well are a different kind of conditionality they're extremely punitive you can you have conditions on payments about what you have to do to get it so for example work for the dole so in particular we have currently a remote program targeting specifically indigenous peoples that is uh, resulting in breaching times 30 to 40 times higher than non the non-remote program Uh, The maternity allowance is linked to child immunisation and then you also have school enrolment attendance through welfare reform measure, again a policy that has been uh, targeted at First Nations people. So you have conditions on what you have to do to get it, but you also have conditions on uh, uh, how to use it and I'm particularly talking about uh, compulsory income management. The current iteration is the uh, cashless debit card, again um, targeted disproportionately at First Nations people. So that's sort of the, one of my f- first issues with the concept of welfare. The other issue I have with, with uh, the concept of welfare is that uh, welfare payments are linked directly and indirectly linked to uh, people's engagement or contribution to the capitalist economy. Uh, and so this is sort of talking about what gets to- uh, what gets um, talked about as mutual obligation. And this has been in- this has endured since uh, Federation of um, settler Australia. So uh, so this speaks to the discourse around lifters and leaners, the deserving and the undeserving. And it's very much linked around if they have worked or people have tried to work. So we can sort of see this also in um, the two categories of payments that are by far the least uh, punitive and and, uh, and with the least amount of conditions on them, which is the veteran payments um, and also the age pension. Um, because they are either seen as workers that have done their time in the labour market or on the battlefield for the nation state. So the deserving poor um, is also regulated through its um, relationship with the economy and employment, um, legitimate poverty um, around sort of um, um, non-abled bodies, uh, but also then the undeserving, uh, the lazy poor, the alcoholics, drug abuse, gamblers, etc., etc. So the, these, are, these two arguments, I think, are, are interesting for us to think about, um, the, and particularly uh, the way in which benefits are linked um, to people's proximity to employment. But the institution of employment as a bedrock of society is severely limited and increasingly becoming more limited. It's worth noting that uh, around the world the informal economy is the formal economy uh, and this has um, colonial and imperial roots to it. Um, And it's also worth saying that the informal economy globally is not, you know, a a space of, you know, exciting entrepreneurship. For most peoples that are in this space, um, life is precarious, it is difficult without security and labour protections, um, and and also with added pressure of uh, state discrimination and stigmatisation. In Australia, full and secure employment is decreasing, uh, increasing underemployment. Um, Ben just talked about young people finding it hard to to find entry-level jobs, even with a university education. You have the expansion of the gig economy, and you have changes in, in automation. Despite that, also there are many uh, there are peoples um, that engage in many in many ways around um, meaningful productive work that may not be counted as formal employment so particularly care work and reproductive labor which the proportion disp- disproportionately falls on on women community work emotional labor ecological work care of country um, and also uh, we heard yesterday just the generation of data through social media the kinds of um, Work that we do through Facebook and Twitter, etc., that's harvested and um, capital is accumulated by um, our friends um, in uh, big companies. Um, So there's a move to, there's not just a need to move away from conditionality, but to also de link economic security um, from, from employment. Um, and so this is where I think universal basic income is important for us to think about. The UBI is unconditional, it's paid to every resident, it's not enough to make you risk, uh, rich, but it's enough to keep a roof over your head um, and food on the table. It's also not something um, that, it, it's not about replacing the whole social security system, um, replacing healthcare, disability support, education, that's something advocated by the right, um, but uh, you know, the sort of global basic income movement rejects that notion completely. It's also not about getting rid of employment, as as Ben also argued. But I want to suggest that we might want to think about UBI not as a grant, but actually go further and to talk about uh, a UBI um, as an inheritance, as a rightful share that people have to the wealth that's generated by all of us. And I think this has, you know, not just a moral argument, but it's, I think it has um, some potential as a political strategy. There's, there's a couple of reasons for this, and, and just, just briefly if I outline them. The first is that value um, that is, feeds... Capitalism is created socially, so it's created through the way in which we value things, and um, and, and we all take part of this. So one very very sort of small example: my brother-in-law pa- played AFL football, and I had a interesting conversation with him about uh, why he his you know quite high salary for playing a game which involves him kicking it skillfully, but kicking it. <laughs> <laughs> kicking it. Did, it was not any more valuable than, say, you know, a nurse's work in a hospital, keeping somebody alive. And why that is is because... But why this is an inheritance question also is for all the thousands of people that sit in the MCG or the SCG and make that game of kicking a red football valuable. And so we can see how this sort of notion of... Um, We can see how this notion of of, uh, socially constructed labour is something that we all take part in, that a mobile phone and an iPad is a lot of metal, sure, skill put together, bringing that together, but there's something more that makes it so expensive, um, and that's the social uh, production of the meaning of why that that iPad is, is so expensive. So that's something we all take part in. Also, um, it's in also important to talk, talk about that economic security and an informal economy is inherent in the production of the formal economy, and so insecurity does feed um, the sort of the notion of this sort of formalized stable employment. And this so labor insecurity is a part of capitalism. The informal economy provides surp- uh, relative surplus labor to drive down uh, formal labor costs. It delivers sources sources of cheap labor, resources, and commodities, um, but also, the formal uh, economy profits from a whole host of unpaid uh, productive labour and, and, you know, we can think about many forms of how this happens, but, you know, particularly care work um, and which, as I commented before, generally is undertaken by women. Um, There was a study that conservatively estimated that women's unpaid labour globally contributes US $10 trillion per year or 13% of the global GDP. So, Because of these reasons, I think it's important for us to think about a UBI as as a rightful share, as an inheritance, um, a way to redistribute the wealth where the entire production apparatus must be treated as a single common inheritance, and that's in the words of of, um, anthropologist James Ferguson. There's two issues or, or two areas that I think needs further consideration around an Australian UBI as a rightful share. One, we need to think about going beyond the nation-state. So a lot of proposals of the UBI um, is at the nation-state level, yet capital is generated both at a domestic and and through domestic and global spheres, and capital accumulation is enjoyed in Australia, the capital accumulation enjoyed in Australia uh, is connected to processes of dispossession outside the nation-state. And so we can think of that in terms of the impacts of climate change, but also um, military intervention, for example. Uh, and so we need to think about um, not just a nation state UBI but thinking about how a rightful share redistributes uh, uh, more globally. And so we need to have an emphasis on transforming capital accumulation processes through taxes regulation while advocating for rightful share on a, on a global, global level. So any Australian focus is a mere abstraction of broader, a broader project of global redistribution. The second area that I think is really important and we maybe be able to discuss more about it is a rightful share in Australia needs to address colonial and neo-colonial dispossession of First Nations land and labour. And so the, the comments before that I made that the story of Australian capitalism is very much linked to the dispossession of uh, First Nations land and labour. Uh, and so a rightful share seems reasonable but perhaps reparation is even better. Uh, and so while uh, an Australian UBI and a right, rightful share for residents we, we might advocate for, we also need to hold um, the, the, the need to think about reparation for, for the colonial and neo-colonial dispossession. And maybe this is something that sort of can feed into um, the current discussions around treaties, sovereignty, um, and to include reparation. I'll stop there. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much, Elise. I don't know what the football fans thought of that, but... um, (laughs) Yeah, but obviously those... Yeah. (laughs) Thanks so much, Elise. And I'm sure, again, there'll be so many questions out of that. Um, Finally, we have... Chris Toomey, um, who is the Director of Policy for the Western Australian Council of Social Service and also Chair of the Green Institute. Um, Chris has also previously worked as a Senior Policy Advisor to our Parliamentary Team and he's also currently completing a PhD at Curtin University. Thanks, Chris.
3: Thank you all very much. I'll keep my comments Fairly short, so we can get on to some questions. I too want to start off by acknowledging that we're meeting and talking on Ngunnawal land. Kaya, Nala Kaya and is how we'd say it in the local language where I come from. It's an important place to start because any conversation that we're having that's about both social and economic inequality, we've got to start with the first people because looking across both social and economic exclusion if we're looking at child protection or justice or simply poverty they do the worst so i think that's a really important place to start from Um, i also wanted to frame things up a little bit different I, i wanted to come back to this idea of how we see ourselves as australians because we have a very strong belief in ourselves as an egalitarian society and we really believe that this great Aussie ideal of the fair go is a real thing that's important to us. And so when you actually go out and you talk to Australian people about basic standards of living, about how they feel about their community and how they care about each other, we're actually disappointed by the way that our society has become more unequal and that the way that this has been done in our name but without our consent. So I feel like that's a really important place to start because... As Ben was saying, we've seen our society grow much more unequal over the last couple of decades. Um, for us in Western Australia, we've seen this amazing resource boom, which actually hugely blew out inequality, hugely pushed up living costs. Um, most of the riches from that actually went to overseas shareholders. And meanwhile, if you're on a low income, your costs went up. And despite the boom having tailed off, and you'll hear, oh, median rents have come down. But if you're on a low income, your costs have been sticky. They've, they've stayed up and you're still struggling to get by. And so we're now at a point where we're going, well, there's been this huge economic growth. We feel like we've squandered it. Our society has become more unequal. Um, one of the things that's really been concerning us has been this growth of both underemployment and insecure work. One of the things we get to do as WACOS, because we're the only state who haven't referred our industrial relations powers, is, is we get to campaign um, on setting the state minimum wage. And Australia, our minimum wage setting has been one of the most important things we've had in the past as a driver of equality in actually redistributing income. But the problem is that the way our industrial relations system has been undermined to allow the growth of more and more part-time insecure work has totally undermined that. That's been one of the biggest things that's allowed us to become more unequal. But then the biggest problem's been how that interacts with our 19th century social security system, which was built around the idea that you'd be in a job for a decade or two, you might get out of it for a while, and then you'd find another one. Whereas at the moment, if you're bouncing in and out of insecure work, if you don't know from day to day or week to week how much money you've got and whether or not you're going to need income support, if you're told you're getting one amount of money but you get a different amount or you're reporting on these states and they're asking against these states, something goes wrong, you end up getting penalised, you end up getting breached. Um, We've had two decades of our welfare system becoming more and more punitive welfare to work, work choices, the Northern Territory intervention, income management, robo-debt, cashless debt cards, drug testing, work for the dole, community employment programs, and so on. It's got to the point, I feel, where we're we're at a tipping point in terms of attitudes, I believe. I I think this is our role now, is to see how, how can we actually get out there and really stimulate the concern our community has. I'm, I mean, we've we've seen in recent years even the business community coming out and saying inequality is the problem. In recent years, we've had the International Monetary Fund and the OECD coming out and saying inequality in Australia is a problem. It's got so much worse. So um, I think that's a real critical part of it, and. So, where this discussion about whether it's a UBI or a guaranteed adequate income, the, the idea that's sitting behind it is first of all, we need to have a system that is much more flexible, that is much more in line with the changing nature of work. At the same time, we've got to be making work better. And so, you know, the, there was some discussion about the importance and the growth of the care economy, and we can see with the combination of aged care and the promised rollouts of the NDIS. There is a huge projection of a caring workforce there. The problem is, in the last decade or so, we've turned them into shit jobs. Uh, Increasingly what's happened, um, we've we've caught on to the idea of, well, we want more consumer choice in these services, but we've turned that into an individual market mechanism and so that increasingly workers in the community sector don't know what work they're getting from day to day and week to week. We do want to give people more control about who they're employing, how they're working for them, what services and support they want but we don't have to turn that into shit jobs. So I, f- I feel that that's a really important part of that. Um, so I think there's a real challenge there and an opportunity around how how we build a social security system that's fit for purpose. How we make sure that we're getting support to people that's flexible. We We can actually afford to be more trusting now because of the amount of information technology systems that we've got, where you know you can get to the end of the month or the end of the financial year and balance it up and see, well, you know, we've we've set our threshold for income here. Is it a bit over? Is it a bit under? That's really not that hard to do. Instead, we've been going in the other direction in such a way that people are always getting caught out. One of the big things that, that we've actually seen happening is how Hard this has been being pushed in some of our Aboriginal communities in the northwest in WA, and so we've got a large population now, particularly in the Pilbara, where there are some other sources of income from royalties who've disappeared from the social security and income support system altogether, and they're relying on these money which are meant to be these you know payments about their share of the wealth, their share of the land. And it's now subsidising the welfare that they're not getting. It's, it's subsidising the support they shouldn't get. And we see Aboriginal communities will say, well, our community really cares about family services, so we're going to put some of our resources into this, and then government will pull back in that area. And, and so, yeah, there's a pile of inequalities that are happening there. Um, so I suppose that the final point I wanted to make there is the way that inequality actually hurts all of us. What we've learned from our cost of living research, first of all, there's this myth that everyone's been struggling with the rise in cost of living, whereas if you actually look at average wages, they've gone up much quicker than essential living costs. But it's been those people, low-skilled jobs, on low and fixed incomes, bouncing in and out of work, or particularly relying on income support. We've had Newstart Allowance hasn't gone up in over a decade. they've been the ones that have been really falling behind and struggling. But the flip side of that is if you actually give those people more money, the resources they spend, the majority of their expenditure goes into essential goods and services. And that's why we've been seeing so much pain and debt being caused by rising energy prices and rising rental prices because that ends up being just about everything that people are spending. And pulling the resources out of there going along this line of austerity actually then has an impact across the community because it slows down what's happening in the local economy. And the flip side of that is if we actually give people a decent, guaranteed, adequate income, more of that goes back into our communities. It creates more local activity and more jobs. It's not going into luxuries that are going off seas. It's going into the stuff that we're doing in a local area. So um, that's where I wanted to take it to. Let's go to questions.
0: Thanks so much, Chris. Um, So we have about half an hour for questions. We might bring Eva back up on the screen. Um, I'm not sure how easily Eva will be able to hear questions from the floor, so um, perhaps try and speak loudly. And if that doesn't work, I I can translate through the microphone. Questions? Um, I don't. I don't know that I'm going to be able to do all of that justice, but I will do my best so that Eva can respond as well. Um, so your first point um, was about how the Protestant work ethic that Eva was talking about has permeated our culture, and that that's really jeopardised well-being in Tasmania, um, and that ahead of the election in March, um, the government, the Liberal government, has given $145 payments to pensioners only for rising costs of electricity bills therefore contributing again to inequality because they're targeting specific groups. Um, Your second point was about the NDIS and privatisation of disability services and concerns around the Dodgy Brothers effect, providers popping up and, and not actually being able to offer services. Um, and then your final point, um, I, I suppose, was about the conditionality that Elise was talking about, um, where you have to log your 25 hours a week in order to receive your welfare payment and how that's capturing not just students, but um, older women and, and other constituencies. Did someone want to kick us off?
2: it, does Eva want
0: to? Eva, did you want to respond to that?
4: Uh, I had a lot of difficulty. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. I couldn't hear most of it. Uh, I think the point about it is, I think what it just illustrates is that the current system is so overloaded with different types of entitlements, different types of awareness, different types of payments, that people spend their entire time trying to understand what goes on and feeling that they're very much on the outside. And I think that's part of the problem, is we try and fix things and if you can't fix that bit, you try and fix the other bit and then you try and fix the other bit. So you end up with this total mess, which is one reason I think we need to have a really good long look at the payment system and try and bring it into a single system where people do get a basic payment and yes, they'll get other bits of payments on top for particular reasons, but it gives them a sense that they're entitled to these payments. And if you're entitled to them, you don't have the same feeling that you have to sort of plead with people and stick to conditions. I mean, what's happening with the cashless debit card and the various other things just takes away people's sense of of value to the world. And it allows other people to sort of dump on them. And they have no sense of autonomy, no sense of agency. All of those things that we know are essential if you're going to be able to make a decent contribution. The questions with the NDIS, I think, are very much bigger questions because this idea of consumer controlled uh, services sounds good, but it's basically a neoliberal stuff because, I mean, people, yes, you want to be able to get the services you want, but asking people to actually work out a plan, and most of us wouldn't be able to plan for the next three months if somebody really asked us, to actually then try and do it and then try and create services and then undermine them because you don't pay proper people or you pay to your relatives, is just setting up another series of problems for a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people who are very well organised have done quite nicely out of the, uh, the thing particularly parents of children with disabilities or people who have got a long-term involvement. But it's a market model, and this is what I think we need to get back to, which is the idea that there have to be community service models which, yes, the consumer has a a deep say in, but not one where they are responsible for the whole process, which is something which, in many cases, the consumers don't really want to do. They just want to know they can get a service that they need. I'm not sure whether I answered all of that because, as I say, I couldn't hear a lot of it. I hope that that actually does it. But I think the main thing that comes through from all of this stuff is we need to simplify it. We can't just pick out this bit and that bit and the other bit. And, you know, that's where I sort of take issues, you know, with some of the points that I didn't hear all of Ben's stuff, but it's that sort of issue of trying to fix the poorest group. And as soon as you fix the poorest group, you've got problems with the next group up if you try and do that and the other. Whereas if you do have a look at a universal payment system, you don't. nobody's passing these sort of judgments about who's the deserving and the undeserving, even if the deserving is the poorest versus the unpoorest, because you've always got a barrier. There's always a point at which somebody is excluded and if you look at the Scandinavian countries where they've got this, they actually managed to charge people higher levels of tax in order to pay for it because everybody, including the rich, is invested in the idea. And that's one of the things that we've never quite grasped here in Australia, that one of the reasons that you get those sort of tensions is that you create barriers with the means test rather than saying this is an entitlement. I really like Elisa's point about that. And then everybody fights to make sure it's there rather than fights to try and get rid of it and object to their tax gain, pay somebody else's payment. So I just think we've got to rethink the whole way that we look at both services and we look at the uh, payment system to get away from setting judgments in that government officials can do that. And I just think, you know, and particularly when you start looking at the Indigenous stuff, and I was interested in doing that, was one of the points I left out of mine, is I think the first thing that we should be doing is actually replace the entire cashless debit card and Northern Territory Basics card with a universal basic income and run ourselves a trial on it and show that it works a bloody side better than the crap they're doing at the moment.
0: Thanks, Eva. You got a big thumbs up from Tammy, so I think, uh, I think that was great.
2: Just, just on the point of conditionality, look, I, I think, just to follow on um, Eva's point, I think it's just a waste of time. So I think, you know, you're forcing people into work for the doll, um, you know, to do bullsh- excuse me, bullshit jobs, which is actually an <laughs> academic term. The Professor David Graeber uses it. Um, but also, you know, the remote um, work for the doll, which is... Focused at First Nations people, you know, this is about assimilation. This is about, you know, uh, it's not because it's not true that people aren't engaged with on productive work uh, on country. People are, but this is about forcing people into capitalist economy, taking on or or being trained into jobs that actually aren't there in remote um, uh, in remote Australia, um, and you know just to acknowledge Francis Markham's work in mapping that. Um, but also, I think the, uh, the last thing I'll say about conditionality too, it's also about all the, it's about disciplining and regulating people in work by focusing and, and making an example out of what happens to you when you don't work hard, when you don't stay in your job, when you don't behave like a good citizen, i.e. in job, um, then this is what happens to you. And what it does is it turns it, uh, um, all of us on each other instead, on the, instead um, of our focus on the system, which is underwriting all of us.
0: Thanks. Uh, yeah? It's
3: just- uh, what happens with uh, our federal government and with our state government and fostering uh, un- um, inequality. Uh, in the states, maybe people aren't so familiar with the public, public partnerships, huge numbers of projects, private uh, sector consortiums, uh, incredibly expensive projects, uh, grossly overpriced, um, and uh, we, we pay the taxes into the system, and and sort of poor position just arrange it out around these projects, particularly in Victoria. It's quite a surprise. Victoria spends less than public sector services than any
5: other state and the territory because sort the of funding for those projects that come from the from recurrent side of the budget. That happens to lesser extent in New South Wales now and happening to be in the ACT. In the ACT. Uh, and the other dimension, of course, is the federal level.
3: Um, you know, um, the, the last cash flows and uh, big business mining companies are the worst being able to avoid paying much tax at all. And all of this must amount to some billions of dollars. I certainly don't have the data to be able to do the calculation. But I was just wondering whether <coughs> our speakers have given some uh, interesting
5: sort of thinking about, uh, about that.
0: Did you want to respond to that
1: Ben um, yeah well certainly on the on the tax side of it, uh, yeah, so Australia has a well, notionally very progressive fair tax system that just happens to have a few holes that go through the middle of it, um, and one of those is is around uh, corporate taxation uh, and ensuring that companies pay tax where they actually make their profits um, and that they pay them and the the other one is in the i think is particularly pernicious because it 's in the name of helping us provide social services. So the tax concessions around superannuation, which is supposed to help people be able to fund their retirement, and the tax concessions around um, capital gains tax and negative gearing, which are notionally about providing rental housing. That's actually the, the, the supposed purpose of them. Um, those two sets combined, they don't cost te- uh, billions of dollars. They cost tens of billions of dollars. Um, we're looking at, if you add them up, around about $60 billion a year. Are absolutely staggering sums of money, and almost none of it goes to that purpose that it is strongly concentrated at the very top and are effectively now just investment strategies. they have almost nothing to do with social need whatsoever, and their only real purpose is to drive up the costs of those social needs, like housing um, so yeah, I mean fixing the tax system I think has to be an absolute priority, and being able to as we plug those those uh, holds. Not only do we get the revenue we need to fund things, we actually start solving some of the problems independently, just because the economy stops redistributing wealth upwards in such a in such a way. Yeah.
0: Any further comments on that, Eva? Yeah.
4: Look, I think one of the problems we've got is we're one of the lowest taxed countries in the OECD. I think we're fourth from the bottom or fifth from the bottom. We act as though we're a high-tax country. We can argue about the distribution of taxes, and I agree with the comments, the last comment made. Far too much money for things like the superannuation tax concessions goes to rich people. We need to attack the superannuation system because, I mean, it was designed, unfortunately, to go to the people that earn most money. And the union movement needs to seriously think about. Its continued support for the increase in super, which actually just increases differences at the top and the bottom. But I do think that we need to actually acknowledge the fact that one of the things we need to do is to raise taxes, and we can raise taxes if more people invest themselves into them. And that's one of the arguments for universal type payments is that if you actually ration them, then people resent paying high taxes. If you don't ration them, they don't resent it nearly as much.
0: Thanks, Eva. Um, I might just ask, if you have a question, maybe come down to one of these front mics um, so that Eva can hear, and then I won't have to translate.
5: Well, what I'm curious about hearing more about the basic income systems that have been applied in Canada, Netherlands, and now also in Finland. They seem to have had very good results. What do you think about those things?
2: Well, just to say, I think most of the, one, the global north ones are just um, beginning, or um, yeah, they're just beginning. So, I think so. The um, Can- Canadian one, I think they're seeing some good things come from it. It's very, very, uh, it's it's right at the beginning. Where you're seeing the biggest um, uh, work is in the global south. So, there's been trials in Namibia and uh, in India, and you know, all sorts of things have come out of this, um, increased productivity, more kids going to school, uh, better, health, uh, better um, uh, nutrition of kids, um, gender equality, and just more sort of feelings of power over their lives, people moving themselves out of debt, households moving out of, out of debt. So there's a whole lot of things that are going on. Um, but I, I don't know, I think there's big questions about, though, in the basic income movement about the, the, the use of trials. Um, because uh, you know these are very specific sites and, and you know um, and you know the amount of political capital that gets used to get um, a society or you know a government to agree on a trial, what happens if you just you know, used all of that energy to bring it in and then sort of bring it, get it up sort of slowly and sort of amp it up slowly, for example. So there's all of that that tension that needs to be sort of sought through. Um, I, I don't know if you've
4: got more. No, I, just, uh, I mean, add to that, because we don't, we don't actually ask questions about conditional payments. And we know conditional payments don't work. They don't work in the Northern Territory. They don't work in, uh, in the uh, Seduna and those various things we've looked at the data. So we know that we've got enough evidence that giving people money does not necessarily stop them working, does not actually affect workforce participation and, and comes up with positive ideas particularly if you don't make it totally con- uh, conditional. So, I don't, you know, we, I think we should run some of it, you know, if we want to run some trials, I just think we get rid of the cashless debit card and those ones and do something about the fact that we'd actually get, I'm used to teach it. We actually have a lot of data from the Northern Territory which shows what doesn't work. So, it would be very easy to translate that and see what does work. You know, it's a good research design, quite apart from anything else. But there is no evidence anywhere out of any of the things I've read which says that giving people money generally reduces either their workforce participation or their state of mind, if it's reasonably unconditional, and it adds to their sense of of who they are. So let's have a look at that and not sort of just, you know, and and go ahead with it.
2: Rachel, did you want to couple of things is one it seems to me if we're going to uh, UBI or a, or a guaranteed adequate income you need to start at a level that's higher than you start because we know that for people that are uh, currently unemployed it's way below, uh, keeps people in poverty so uh, for a start. Um, secondly is universality of services seems to me to be one of those key things that has to go along with UBI. So if we were going to talk about a trial and I tend to agree with a lease I'd rather us just go for it and maybe looking at starting at priority areas for implementation, we have to make sure we've got the services right as well, otherwise I, I think we're not going to – it's going to start looking like it doesn't meet people's
4: needs and therefore people say it's a failure. Can I ask for a comment? Thanks, Rach.
1: <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think the, the, one of the biggest challenges to it is the housing market. Because our housing market is just so fundamentally broken, if you were to increase the incomes of people at the bottom of the income distribution, it would push up rents at the bottom of the rental market. Um, and so some of it will be transferred as a direct payment to landlords. Uh, so the only real way of controlling that is by expanding the supply of affordable and social well, social housing in, in some form, um, in order to be able to have the rents not respond directly to that market impulse. Uh, and that's similar in other areas. So the same thing could happen with, you know, with childcare, if you were freeing up some labour supply there too. So uh, they absolutely do go together. If you were to privatise those services at the same time, you would just skyrocket the cost of living necessary to be able to fund and make it completely unaffordable. Um, so yeah, I think that's, it's really important that we tie them together. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Can I
4: just add some? Put something in on that. I think one of the dangers with the UBI is we try and solve every inequality problem with the UBI. I think we need yes, housing. We need to look at it, but it's a really big separate issue. Childcare. If we hadn't sold it all off to the private sector, we'd probably be in a lot better position. It's, you know, the problem is the fact that we've actually got something like 70% of it being provided by private providers, as we have with aged care. We need to get away from the idea that the private sector should have anything to do with community services and put them back into the community. And leave the <laughs> private sector. It's completely absurd. But I think there's a serious danger of expecting the UBI one to do more than create a certain level of income security and we can, and I think we ensure the other things happening because if we try and bundle it all into the same bundle it will not work and I think that's a, you know there's a real danger in doing that I think we, we, we create income security then we look at the services and the other things but we make sure that they don't you know that one doesn't sort of knock off the other but at the same time we don't expect them all to solve say you know the, the one thing to solve all of those issues
3: um. I suppose one of the challenges there as well is um, what we're actually aiming for is a universal basic standard of living. One of the challenges is for particular groups, depending on where they're living in the country, whether they've got a disability, whether they've got kids, whether they've got other needs, the actual cost of getting to that living standard can be different. So there's a challenge about how do you have a simple universal system but still make sure that you're doing what you need to do to actually get both the equality of access but also the equality of outcomes. And so there's a bit of a balancing act to how you do that. Um, it doesn't mean that it has to get as messy and complicated as we've seen. And, and in fact, going back to that story about, you know, the Tasmanian government throwing out an extra $145 payment, this is one of the biggest ways we've got in this mess that... that um, a lot of the, the kind of programs or the concessions or the payments that we've got have come about as one off announceables that have been picked as a particular sweetener to throw into an election. And so, you know, we've been having this debate in Western Australia at the moment because we've got now a huge amount of social concessions that are attached to the WI Seniors card, which is not means tested. So what that means practically is we're spending more money subsidising the lifestyle choices of self-funded retirees than we're giving to age pensioners who are living in poverty because they've got more capacity to actually get out there and use that. But the problem is once you've given it to that group, they're a growing proportion. They've got a lot of time. They've got a lot of political capital. It's very hard to get anything back. And so we've had these debates for five or six years, and we keep getting these promises of reviews and so on. and nothing happens because once, once you've given it out and there's that sense of entitlement, it's very hard to get it back.
5: Uh, okay. Am I all right to go? Yeah. Look, um, I think the discussion so far is, and the discussion with UBI um, about which I'm not totally convinced um, has really been geared at knocking the rough, vicious edges of capitalism as we are now experiencing it. Now, um, okay, I grew up in a social welfare um, society in England um, during the 50s and 60s and so on, totally free education to um, a good standard of um, health care, etc., etc. That's all gone. Why is it gone? Because it's part of a social democratic model that doesn't really work in the long term because you've got the interests of capital with its dynamic of capital accumulation, working away in the background, and white anting those measures that we try and put forward. I'm not saying they shouldn't be put forward, but they it should only be done as a as a as a step towards a larger agenda and that agenda, if we really want to get rid of the vicious inequalities that are now there, that agenda has got to be around the dismantling of capitalism.
1: Sorry, it was more of a comment, but...
0: Um, some responses yep. to that?
1: I, 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 actually, I think it's really good that you've made the comment, so that's good. Um, yeah, and I suppose part of the question is, what does it mean to be a stepping stone on the way to that, and what would it mean to dismantle capitalism? Um, I do think we should see the automation drive as a way of effectively abolishing capital, or at least the value of capital. And when we talk about private wealth being a good thing, like increases in private wealth are increases in inequality in almost all circumstances. It is very, very hard to increase net private wealth and not increase inequality. Um, and if you think about that, just think about transferring something like hospitals from the public sector to the private sector, or the reverse... When you, you nationalise those things, when you make them public, or when you tax them so that their rent benefits go away, um, or we provide them so that people have them as, access to, as rights and reduce the rate of profit in that sector, all of those things make equality better, and all of those things undermine that, that aspect of capital. Um, so I think absolutely we should have that in our sights, and we should be conscious of what we're doing with that. But, yeah, it's really, really powerful. And it's, it's one thing, you know, yes, it wide ants you even when you've got some victories, but completely undermining all at once, I think, is also very challenging. <laughs> so uh, the, these, the, uh, us wide, we, I think we should see what we're doing as wide-anting it um, and, and that that is actually a really positive, hopeful mission.
2: Yeah, I think you raise a really important point. One thing I'll say is that I think UBI has a, a sort of a... There's like a radical vision of UBI and then there's a sort of a vanilla idea of UBI. And, and it's a very much part of the debate right, right now. So you have this sort of idea of UBI as a poverty alleviation measure. So you see this here, but you also see internationally. You see you know um, international NGOs such as Give GiveDirectly so using it very much as a, a poverty, anti-poverty sort of mechanism, which is you know, important, but not as a radical redistributive mechanism. Um, and, you know, and this feeds into some of the questions around what does it mean when you have, you know, what's his name, Zuckerberg donating or pr- or putting forward that he's going to donate whole lots of money to UBI and some of these sort of Silicon Valley sort of elite um, um holders of capital seeing this as a mechanism to still stay elite but to sort of keep us surviving just enough to so, so that is not the radical vision of, of ubi yeah but there is I think there is a, a, a radical vision but but I think it's you know I, I, I'm it's not quite clear to me exactly what that is but I think it is a, a stepping stone and I think we must not take our eyes off the fact that you know um something yeah it, it needs to go way beyond the measure of, of
4: just poverty alleviation, hmm. I'd,
3: I'd, I'd have to say, say that I think one um, of the
4: important things is that we need to look at it as something that reinforces the idea that we are social beings, that we are socially connected, and what is important is those social connections. One of the advantages of a UBI is it sort of, in a sense, takes out that emphasis on capital accumulation, on the paid work area, on that whole thing. There, yes, I know there's some right-wingers that think it's a UBI idea. But it's about time that the left stop whinging just because Zuckerberg says it and actually comes up with the idea of how we do it with a left-wing thing. We need to look at a collective model, at, a, at the fact that this is something that we get because we are citizens and because we are responsible for other people. At the moment, we've got a huge counter to decades of stupid, bloody individualism and market forces. And this gets outside the market, and as such, I think it can actually act as a as a platform for social change.
3: I just couldn't help contrasting their billionaires with our billionaires and saying, well, yeah, you've got Zuckerman <laughs> saying we'll give people free money. Well, what about Andrew Forrest saying we'll take it off them and That's tell them right. how they can spend it? So as <laughs>
5: yeah,
3: sure. a more worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, and on that note, we've come to time. I'm sorry that there's not time for, for more questions. If you can all join me in thanking what has been an amazing panel. We're lucky to be joined by Skype by Eva Cox, who's a nationally recognised political and policy commentator, researcher and activist, currently based at the University of Technology in Sydney. Um, my my favourite part about Eva's biography is that she has been featured on a postage stamp, um, which I think is a great claim to fame. Um, so without further ado, um, thank you, Eva. Thank
4: you. Can you, can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Right, good. No, uh, I can't. I, I'm just. I have a very interesting view of a of a of a door, so I can't see any of your faces, which is always a bit difficult when you're actually talking. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about a UBI and a whole lot of different areas, and talking about it, in a universal basic income, and start with the concept of inequality. I wrote quite a long article earlier this year about inequality, pointing out that inequality isn't really an economic. It's much more of what I call a social problem, because we we live with inequality all the time. Some people are taller, some are shorter. We all have, there are lots of differences between us. But the differences that really irk us are not necessarily even just the fine natural ones. It's a sense of unfairness. And what we have at the moment is a huge sense of the unfairness of the distribution of incomes and the way that they are actually operating. And one of the reasons we have this deep sense of unfairness is that there's an actual huge level of distrust within the community which is a creation of years and years of decades of neoliberalism which means we've translated the idea that we are citizens living in a society to the idea that we're basically customers living in a market. And when you start dealing with the concept of a market and we start feeling that we're not treated as citizens but as just customers We tend to be very angry about what happens when things go wrong, when we don't get access to things and various other things, because the relationship of customer to provider of services is very different from the relationship that we have when we're talking about citizenship. So one of the reasons I want to talk about inequality and talk about it particularly in the context of a UBI, of a universal basic income, is I think we've got to get back to something quite dramatic, which changes our relationship to government and to other people. Because being a customer is basically part of a distrust relationship. Competition is based on distrust, not trust. So it's not surprising that we're actually in a situation where distrust is so strong that people feel that they're excluded by government action because they don't see government anymore. They don't see government as being the provider of anything that's of much use to them. You know, once upon a time, if you can walk out of your front door, and streets were there for people. You didn't necessarily always have to pay for going down certain ones of them. We owned public buildings. We owned airlines. We owned banks. We owned all sorts of things. There was a sense of communality and relationships with government. And government was there as a provider of good things. So you only have to go back to the idea that some of you who are old enough to remember the old Monopoly boards as we had concepts like a public utility, which was the idea that things like water... And power were provided by the government at a level we could afford and the main idea of providing it, particularly with the power areas, was to make sure that we had a decent standard of living. Now we sold it off and what we're trying to do is create profits out of it and that whole changes the relationship between us and government. I had an argument once with some senior bureaucrats who said the reason the government owned the water supply for instance, which it does in New South Wales, I'm not sure it does everywhere else, was that the government could make money out of it. And I said, no, it was actually taken over initially as a health measure to make sure that we actually have clean water. They didn't believe me. And that's why we actually are living in a society where the idea that things are done for the common good, you know, for the needs of people seems to have disappeared entirely off the agenda. And that's one of the reasons why the inequality that we have between incomes and between access to incomes has become such a major issue. So I want to come back to something which is actually a much bigger picture of where we're going. I think we need to get back to the point where we actually see government as representing the needs of people. And one of the ways it can do that is by reappearing to some degree as a provider of services. Now, one of the services I do want to talk about, particularly because it relates to inequality, is income. At the moment, we have a huge overemphasis on the idea that income has to be that thing which is actually creates money, in which actually we earn money. just been fiddling around with something else I'm trying to write on what is work. To try and make the distinction between the fact that we seem to have a huge overemphasis on paid work, on having a job, on getting a job, on making a job core of our identity. If you don't have a job, you're not a productive member of society. If you don't have paid work, there's something wrong with you. And we actually set up an income support system which increasingly emphasizes the fact that if you're on a form of income support, there's something wrong with you. We completely ignore the fact that the structures of society actually make impossible for many of us to get jobs. You know, A, we're carers, we have other things which inhibit it, which people are prejudiced against us, whether we've got disabilities or other things. And there's a whole range of reasons why even now, and certainly over the last few decades, it has often been harder and harder for some people to find paid work. And yet the entire emphasis, and this is an emphasis that is on the left and the right, is the way that we actually fix this is by giving everybody a paid job. But if you go back through our history... This emphasis on paid work is a Western product of the whole idea of a combination of it, like the Reformation and the Enlightenment and the whole sort of industrial revolution that started in the West. So the idea of being a paid laborer, which was very strong in the sort of, 18th, the beginning of uh, late 18th into the 19th century, with the development of the industrial base and colonization and various other things, was that somehow you got, if you like, that sort of Protestant view that work, paid work is good for you, and if you were lazy or didn't become involved in paid work, that there was something wrong with you. This is a very sort of northern European version of what is valued in society. And yet somehow or other we've pushed this into the entire world, and we've accepted it as some sort of gospel, and I deliberately use that term because it does come out of Protestant Christian views of what matters, yet here we are 200 years plus after the sort of rising of the Industrial Revolution trying to work in a world where we actually need to look at issues like reducing our use of resources, of environmental resources, because we're stuffing up the planet, where we need to look at the whole idea that maybe, well definitely, the gross domestic product is an extraordinarily bad measure of the well-being of a country. I keep saying, yes, it's growth. B, it's not domestic because it doesn't deal with housework. And P, uh, it's not productive because it actually it just deals with making money. And in fact, if you look at GDP, it, GDP goes up when we have bushfires and floods because the cost of actually repairing them and repairing car accidents pushes up our GDP. So there's lots of nasty things that count in that. It's all about trade goods. good. It's not about what we do for nothing. And yet a very high proportion of what we all do, particularly women, is done for free, is done unpaid. It's what holds society together. So we've moved over these decades from living in a society to living in an economy. And because I'm fairly old, I can remember back to the 60s and 70s, when we put a very strong emphasis on community and society and social well-being. But the word social has virtually disappeared off the agenda with the arrival of neoliberalism and market models. And we've somehow demeaned the entire social system so that everything is done on a price, on a cost, and the entire emphasis is on paying jobs. A lot of the left has become very engaged with the idea that what people want is jobs. I've had a few arguments with people because basically Marx's view of fixing society was getting rid of capitalism and working on behalf of paid workers, I want to raise the issue that what we need to do is start looking at how people make social contributions, some of which will be economic, but that we broaden the whole basis of recognising the importance of the contributions that we make. Now, a lot of this has come out of my particular interest as a feminist, and I've had a long track record as a feminist, because I'm aware of the fact that women still do the bulk of unpaid work. You've only got to look at the results of the census It's happening, uh, the data that's coming out now. And it still shows women who are in paid jobs do far more work than men who are in paid jobs. They work fewer paid hours because they still do the unpaid work. And somehow or other, the idea of fixing that is... Make sure that women can work for longer hours, that we can work for longer years, that we can increase the paid labour force of women, we can increase working hours. And working hours also produce an interesting thing there because I'm old enough to remember when we were actually arguing still about reducing the 40-hour week down to the 37-and-a-half-hour week and down to the 35-hour week. And somewhere along that line, (coughs) we lost the argument because there's no argument at the moment about cutting working hours. We still have the absurd definition that if you do 35 hours a week, you're a full-time worker. If you do 34 hours a week, you're a part-time worker, which is quite ridiculous. Particularly since if you do 80 hours a week, you're a full-time worker, and you do one hour a week, you're a part-time worker. And they're not useful definitions. Yet we hang on to them as though they're significant and they turn up all the time in statistics. I think we need to get away from that and start looking at the sort of contributions people to make to societies, both paid and unpaid. So that gets me back to the idea that we need to do something very dramatic to take a look at how we create a better society than the one we have at the moment, and a fairer society that recognises all the different levels of contributions, that we can look at the idea that maybe we should be entitled to the basic level of income that everybody should get. So this is the idea of a universal basic income, which I've been playing around with for quite some time, which I find a very interesting idea. And I think it's an idea that needs to be adopted by any group that has a radical view of how to change society. Radical means from the roots up. And one of the roots we need to get back to is what makes a good society. And what makes a good society? We're social beings, we're connected beings, We have relationships, and out of our relationships there's all sorts of obligations and pleasures of things that we do. We're also, to some degree, individuals, and we do things as individuals, but there's always that balance between being part of a social group and being an individual. And now we have this gross emphasis on individuality that fits very neatly with the market model, with this idea of homo economicus, which is that human beings are nasty, self-interested, rational individuals that do anything to actually produce their own self-interest or serve their own self-interest. We need to get away from that. We need to get back to the idea that collectivity is basically a, a, the connections we need as a human society. So I want to sort of use the idea of discussions of a UPI to start talking about what sort of society we want to live in. Now, there's a lot of resistance to a universal basic income, which would be, for instance, maybe paying everybody four to five hundred bucks a week, regardless of their income. Now, careful of that, because for some reason in Australia, we grew into an idea that there was something really wrong with the idea of giving any sort of government money to the rich. We have one of the meanest and nastiest welfare services and systems in the country. So I think we need to get back to this construction of looking at giving everybody a basic income of recognising that we all make different sorts of contributions and we do make different sorts of contributions and having a basic income to replace our very bad welfare system is actually something that we need to seriously consider. As soon as you means test somebody, anybody, you start creating a barrier between those that have it and those that don't. And the wealthier people that don't get the income support tend to be hostile and get to accountants to see if they can bend their income so they can get it. So on the one hand they hate people who get what they think is money for nothing and sit on their bums all day. And on the other hand, we actually need to do something about the uh, about the fact that you know that the it doesn't actually work that way. They've done a lot of experiments with the idea of non-means-tested payments in other countries and they've proved that people do continue to make contributions, some paid and some unpaid. It doesn't discourage people from taking paid jobs. But what it does do is get away from the idea of stigmatising people by giving them welfare payments. I've done a lot of work in welfare policy over the years and basically you cannot fix the current welfare system with its means tests. We spend an enormous amount of time policing people, controlling people, and Australia, unlike most overseas countries, is moving into the area of being much more controlled. We've got cashless debit cards. We've got all sorts of other uh, things. We actually put more and more conditional welfare on people and tell them that they actually are, you know, they have to turn up and they have to do work for nothing like Indigenous people in in order to prove that they have the work ethic. I think we need to recognise a work ethic is not something that we do want to pursue. We want to pursue the capacity of people to be respected and to make contributions. If we introduce the idea of a universal basic income, which a means taxed, so it wouldn't taxed rich, we can actually create the idea that this is actually a social dividend payment, not a welfare payment, which recognises the contribution people make and the needs that people have. If we try and do something like that, we can do it and actually create a new debate about the society that we're going to live in. And we might actually get people back to trusting the idea of a democratic government because a democratic government recognises the contributions that nearly all of us make one way or the other. So I think we just need to start thinking seriously about that. And just as a sort of final point, because I I wasn't told how long I was supposed to talk for, so this is why I'm sort of finding it a bit difficult, uh, that we actually need to try and think through, how do we actually do this? One thing I would encourage the Greens as a party to do is to get a coherent income support policy. You don't have one. You have a set of principles. What we need to do is unite all of the payments, age pensions, disability pensions, get rid of superannuation tax concessions because they're just a form of pension that we give to the rich, get rid of all of these categories of payments and give everybody a basic payment, make sure that we also maintain a good set of public services that everybody gets access to and create a much fairer society where people don't have to sort of look over their shoulders and don't have to report constantly on what they're doing and don't have to jump through hoops which actually take away their sense of agency and where we will create a much fairer, much more just and equitable type of society. It requires some really bold thinking to get away from the idea that we can do things for other people. We need to give people a sense of agency, and I know a lot of people who are on welfare, and one of the things that gives you some sense of agency is having some control over some money and not having to jump through a million hoops and deal with center links, absurdities and all the nasty things that they're doing to people on welfare at the moment. So if we want to create a better society, if we want to move back from customers to being citizens, we want to create the sort of trust in democratic processes that we need in order to make sure that we don't end up with the sort of populist crap, which means that people only trust people that look like them and talk like them. We need to do some serious thinking about what sort of social policy we do. And I think UBI is a very good starting point.